Amen. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, with me and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, as we continue our study through the seven letters in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We looked at the first one of those last week. This morning we will look at the second one, the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. If you were not here this morning when I began the service, I do want to remind you again that today at 5 o'clock, if you're able and willing, we would love for you to come out with us as we continue our door-to-door evangelism. Looking forward to just going to our neighbors, encouraging them uh, in their relationship with Christ, inviting them to church. So please come at 5 o'clock today. We'd love to have you there as we seek to be a church that not only preaches the Bible in this place, but preaches it out there. Amen. Uh, what a shame it would be if we came here and amen to this word, but didn't go out and say it to those who don't know Christ. It was quite a few years ago in which I took a couple of days away by myself to just pray and think and fast and ask the Lord to speak to me. Someone had provided a place for me to go and as I was leaving for that time with great really hopes and expectations of what God would do in my life, someone handed me a piece of paper with 10 questions that they suggested I ask myself. All of these were questions to help determine what it is that God was doing in your life, maybe areas of strength or weakness. And many of the questions were there to help determine what are your passions and your giftings and how it is that God wants to use you. Out of all of those questions, I only remember one of them. It is one that has stayed with me throughout the years and one that has continued to have really a deep effect on my life. I Even just a couple of months ago as I was praying, went back to this same question, was reminded once again of how God used it in my life. The question was this, what are the Bible characters that you identify with the most and want to emulate the most? What are the Bible characters that you identify the most and that want to be the most like, to emulate the most? I didn't go at this question haphazardly. I actually took some time to pray through it and think about it. And I did come to an answer that week, and an answer that I still believe and really still affects the way in which I live and do ministry. The two characters that I love the most are Joshua and Barnabas. Joshua and Barnabas. Joshua was a directional leader. He was called by God in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in courage and to lead the people to accomplish everything that God has for them. I pray that God, by His grace, would make me a Joshua. The second was was Barnabas. Barnabas is a spiritual encourager. Joshua, a directional leader. Barnabas, a spiritual encourager. Everywhere he went, he was motivating the church to continue and to press on. Barnabas really is one of my favorites. As a matter of fact, I I really wanted, when we had our first son, to name our son Barnabas. I thought in two ways this could be great. Number one, we could name him Barnabas after the man in the Bible and call him Barney after Barney Fife. (laughs) That, my friends, is what you call a win-win. We have essentially covered two of the greatest men that have ever lived in the history of this world. Two men that I would love for my son to emulate. It didn't pass the test with Andrea, but I thought it was a great idea. I love Barnabas. Here's Barnabas' ministry. Barnabas' ministry was simply this. His ministry was to the church, to those who believed. And the calling upon his life was to go from church to church to church to church and just plead with them to not give up. To plead with them to remain faithful until the end, knowing the pressures that were around them in the early church, to plead with them to continue in the grace of God, to continue in the faith, to remain steadfast in the things of the Lord. And every time you see the name of Barnabas come up in the book of Acts, he is simply pleading with the church, don't 
give up, stay faithful until the end. He is, he is not alone in that message. If you would start at the beginning of the New Testament and go all the way to the end, you would find that without exception, every book of the Bible, every writer of the New Testament under the authority of the Holy Spirit was writing with this same message in mind. Jesus said, those who endure to the end will be saved. Paul says, if we endure to the end, we shall reign with Christ. James says, those who persevere to the end will get the crown of life. The entire book of Hebrews, the entire book is written to plead with the church, to go all the way to the end, to receive the promises, to get everything that God has for them, to take hold of everything, to not give in. To the point where in Hebrews chapter 10 the author says, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance if you receive the promises of God. Over and over again, it seems that with every New Testament writer, there seems to be this burden weighing heavily on them that calls them to speak to the church and say, church, keep pressing on, be faithful, don't give up. Until the moment you die, until your very last breath, continue to stand for Jesus Christ. And this is exactly the message that Jesus was giving to the church at Smyrna. Out of all the seven letters, there are only two of the letters that do not contain any type of rebuke. This is one of them. It just has a strong exhortation for them to continue to persevere and to be faithful unto the end. Look at what it says in verses 8, going through verse 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This entire letter can be summarized in four words right there in the middle of verse 10. Four words, they're a strong exhortation, they're what's called an imperative, the strongest form of command you can have in the Greek language. The four words are this, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Paul is writing to a small church in a large and prominent city. A church that is overwhelmed by the persecution and the pressures around them. They are in a godless city that is rooted in paganism, nationalism, and emperor worship. If I explain to you all of the things that had been done, the statues that had been built, the things that were required in order to worship the emperors, to worship the nation, you wouldn't believe it. And the pressures on this church were not just from the idolatrous pagans around them, we would expect that but even almost greater pressure from the religious Jews. The religious Jews and the pagan idolaters had one thing in common. They both hated Jesus. They both wanted to destroy Christians. 
And they could agree, and we see this at the end of Jesus' life, they could agree on one thing. We can come together with this one thing to go against the people of God. And it was in that context in which Jesus writes to them, knowing full well everything that they're suffering and the pressures that are around them, and he simply pleads with them to be faithful unto death. To not give up. Don't be overcome by evil. Don't be overcome by the pressures of the world. Don't let the pressures of the world squeeze out your faithfulness, but be faithful unto death. You say, well, well, how are they supposed to do that? I mean, given all of the pressures they have, which are intense, and the pressures which continue to come at them, and as they're about to find out, are not going to get any better, gonna get it, they're going to get worse. The answer Jesus gives them is this is that the way in which you remain faithful to end is through the building of your confidence in me. I mean, I, I do find it fascinating as he writes this letter. He says, listen, I know you're suffering, and I also know it's about to get worse. Now, when I first read this letter, it seemed like Jesus was just writing them to tell them, listen, you think it's bad now, just wait. It's about to get a whole lot worse. I, I just want to warn you, things are going to get really, really bad. I mean, you think it's bad now, just wait. Which seems to me not a great reason to write a letter. Doesn't seem encouraging or affirming in any way. But as I read it over and over again, what I realized is this. That he is not simply giving them information. What he is doing is he is pleading with them to have full assurance in who Christ actually is. He wants to build their confidence to the extent that the external pressures are no longer able to take them down. It is really a picture of Matthew 7 where Jesus talks about those who have built their house and one built their house on sand and the wind, the waves come and the house cannot persevere the wind and the rains. Why? Because their foundation was not solid. So what it is that Jesus is saying is this, is you're going to have to have a deeper confidence if you're going to withstand the pressures that are about to come at you. And I think the point of this letter to the church at Smyrna for them and the point for us is simply this. Our internal confidence must be strong enough to withstand external pressures. Write that down. Our internal confidence, the internal confidence we have in Jesus Christ, must be strong enough to withstand external pressures. Now, our pressures are not their pressures. Most of us will never experience the kind of pressures that they're feeling. But the enemy has all kinds of ways to put pressure on us. I think about the parable of the soils, which there was only one that proved effective. And the reason it proved genuine and authentic is because it made it till the end. And I think about the one soil that actually sprung up and it seemed to bear fruit and it seemed that it was a true believer. But what happened? Persecution, deceitfulness of riches, and the worries of the world choked it out and showed that it wasn't real. It's not simply persecution. Sometimes deceitfulness of riches or just the worries of the world. Or could it be that the greatest pressure on us is not our suffering and persecution, but the greatest pressure on us is simply our comfort? Could it be that God wants to use, or God is, gonna, is watching as the comforts of this world are lulling us to sleep, are lulling us away from Jesus Christ? Whatever the fact is, is that we all have pressures. Now listen, I, I just, as I'm thinking about this passage don't you, don't you feel this? Don't you feel that everything around you is pressuring you against being faithful to Jesus Christ? 
Do you not feel the constant pull away from Jesus Christ? Do you not feel that if you start drifting, you do not drift towards godliness? You drift away from Jesus Christ. Don't you feel it? I mean, I mean don't you see it? Don't you see those around you? Those in your life or in your family who started great and you just assume they were doing great, but they have not remained faithful to the end. Do you not know those who used to be right here in this room, but they are not here this morning. Why? Because they're not finishing well. We all know these people. And it is with that in mind in which Jesus is pleading with them, saying, listen, until your last breath, simply be faithful. Jesus wants to build our confidence this morning. Knowing not only the pressures now, but the pressures you are going to endure to help us be able to withstand those pressures. So this morning, I want to exhort you from this passage with three areas of confidence that will allow you to be able to withstand the pressures that are now and the pressures that are coming. The first one is this. Be confident in the Lord's sovereignty. Be confident in the Lord's sovereignty. This passage oozes, it drips with sovereignty. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last. I love that. Jesus is first, he says. And we've seen that he is the Alpha and the Omega in chapter 1. This continues to be repeated. He is the first, meaning that he is before all things. He is the creator of all things. But it is not simply a reference to the fact that he is first in time, it is also a reference to the fact that he is first in rank, that he is the first. Colossians chapter 1 says that he is to be preeminent over all things. What does that mean? That he is to have first place over all things, that Jesus is first in time and Jesus is first in rank. There is no one that ranks higher than he ranks. There is only one number one, and his name is Jesus Christ. He outranks everyone and always will until all eternity. To such an extent that in Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That Jesus is the mediator of all of the authority of God. He is first in time and first in rank. He's also last. Meaning that at the end of everything, when all is said and done, there is one person remaining. And his name is Jesus Christ. There is one man left standing at the end of all of those things, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the only others that are standing are those who are united with Christ by faith. That if you are in Christ, having given your life to Jesus Christ, then he will be the one standing, and you will be standing with him. Just read Revelation 19, where he does return and destroys all of his enemies, and he is the only one left standing in all authority and the only ones with him are those who are his. He is the first. He is the last. He always wins. It also says he, he died and came to life. I mean, why these reminders? Because these reminders are boosting their confidence. Listen, church, the one that you serve, the one that has called you, the one that has overseen all things is the one who has conquered death and lives forever. Nobody took his life. He said this. He said, I lay down my life, and if I want to, I'll pick it back up again. Who else can say that but Jesus Christ? He says, listen, I'm laying it down, and I will pick it up, and that's exactly what he did. He picked it up again. He has authority over all of these things. Let's continue what he says. He says, I know, verse 9, your tribulation and your 
poverty and the slander. See, listen, I'm not, I'm not unaware. I mean, I feel like sometimes in our suffering, we think that God has forgotten us, that all of a sudden something snuck past him, that he wasn't watching for a moment and something came in, and now he's scrambling for what to do because he didn't see that one coming. He's saying, no, listen, I know all of these things. I'm fully aware of everything that is going on in your life. Proverbs 15.3 says the eyes of the Lord are watching over all things, the good and the evil. There is nothing that is happening in your life that he does not see. Look at his statement of sovereignty in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. He knows what's about to happen because he knows the future. He is fully aware of what's going on now. Listen, Jesus knows everything that you're going to encounter five minutes from now, five days from now, five years from now, whatever it is. He knows all of those things. He sees all of those things coming. And then what I love is this. It says, he's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. He not only knows what's coming, he knows how long it's going to last. He is determining the time. You're going to suffer and you're going to suffer for ten days. Now, We don't know if that's a literal 10 days. All we know is this. He knows the time. He is limiting the time. Jesus is the one who determines how long you'll suffer and when it'll be done. He also has authority over the purpose of your suffering. You see, I love this because here's the enemy coming after us who is trying anything he can to take us down. His desire is to take us down. He then throws us into prison or brings an illness, whatever he might do. But Jesus says this. He says, this is done that you may be tested. In other words, Satan is a pawn. He has all of his schemes and all of his plans, but the reality is, as 1 Peter 5.10 says, that our suffering exists to restore and strengthen and confirm and establish us. What the devil means for evil, God is working for our good. He is behind the scenes taking all of the devil's schemes and using them. Can you imagine how infuriating this must be for the enemy? He throws them into prison, and it emboldens their faith. And I love this. In 1 Peter 1, 6, it says this, The testing of your faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the enemy is trying to take them down and squelch the gospel. What's happening is that those who persevere in trial actually give honor and glory and praise to Jesus Christ. It goes the exact opposite direction he wants it to go. He's saying, listen, I... I'm over all these things. This is a test of your faith. It exists to strengthen you and to establish you. Let me just tell you something. Every one of us have pressures, and you're going to have more. Life is just hard. And if you do not have absolute confidence in the sovereignty of God, there is no way you will be able to withstand the pressures that are coming. You have to stand with an absolute confidence that I am under the almighty hand of a sovereign God. He is working all things, Ephesians 1, according to the counsel of his will, Romans 8. He is working all things according to our good and his glory. I am fully confident in standing in the confidence that this situation did not take God by surprise. Confidence in his sovereignty is not only a call to trust him and to rest in him, but listen, if this is true, that he is the first and the last and he and his people will be the only ones standing, what I feel like is is this, this statement right here is a plea with you to make sure that Christ is first in you. That Christ is preeminent not just in the church, but he's preeminent in your life. He is first and he will remain first. And everyone who are in him by faith are first if Jesus is not first in your life. 
You do not grasp what it means for him to be the sovereign ruler of all things. Is he first in your life? Is he calling the shots? Does he have absolute authority, not over all things, but over you in your life? This passage is a call to examine my life and not only say, am I resting in him? Am I trusting him? A call to examine my life to say, is he first in me? Is he ruling and reigning in me? If he is seated at the right hand of the Father, above all rule and power and authority, what I want to know is he's seated in your heart as first place over everything. When he is, you have a type of confidence that only a believer in Christ can understand. Be confident in his sovereignty. The next one is this. I want to encourage you to write this down. Be confident in his empathy. This may sound strange, but this is such a good one. It makes me happy. Be confident in his empathy. So what we're trying to do is build an internal confidence strong enough to withstand all of the pressures. The first one is, I believe he's sovereign. I'm resting in that. I'm believing that. He is Lord of my life. Therefore, I stand with confidence that I am in him. The next one is this. I am wanting to build confidence in your heart that Jesus is empathetic. I'm confident in his empathy. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation, your poverty, your slander. I know that. Now, there's two ways to read that. One way would be, I know, I'm aware, I've got it. I, I fully am fully aware of what's going on in your life. I know that. Another way to read it is this. Listen to me, look at me. I just, I want you to know, I know. I understand. I'm not just aware, but I, I know what it's like to be in your situation. Now, the truth is we can use this in both ways because this passage in every verse oozes with the sovereignty of God. But if you want to know the real way in which this is used right here in verse 9, that I know is supposed to be an empathetic no with Jesus saying, I don't only have mental assent to what you're going through. I know exactly what you're going through because I went through it too, and I feel it. He has this rare quality of, of empathy where he is sensitive to our other's needs. He doesn't just know, he understands. He doesn't just understand, he feels. See, if you're taking notes, write down Hebrews 4.15. It says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Listen to this statement. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There is nothing you have encountered that Jesus does not understand. He has been there. He knows it. He feels it. There, there, there is a ruler over all of heaven and earth, sitting in heaven right now, who loves you, is passionate about you, is intimately acquainted with you, who views you as his own bride and his own body, and every single thing you're feeling, he feels and is empathetic for. He feels it. He understands it. He says this, I, I know your tribulation. That is a word that means burdened to the point of being crushed. Jesus knows what it's like because Isaiah 53 says he was crushed for our iniquities. He knows what it's like to carry a burden so heavy that you feel like you're going to be crushed under the weight. If you feel that this morning, Jesus feels it with you. He says, I know your, your poverty. Jesus had no place to lay his head. There's two words that could have been used here for poverty. 
One would mean nothing extra and one would mean nothing at all. And Jesus intentionally chooses the harder word, not to mean that they just don't have a lot extra, but to mean they actually have nothing. Jesus says, I know your poverty. I know you absolutely have nothing, but I want you to know I understand that. I was the same way. I didn't have anything, but I also understood that although I was poor in this life, in worldly perspectives, I was rich in ways that no one else understood. That I was rich in fellowship with Jesus. I was rich in inheritance. I was rich in reward. Because he says that. He says, I know of your poverty, but he's saying, but, but in reality, you're, you're rich. I mean, they're poor in what they can't keep, but they're rich in what they can't lose. And in the book of Revelation, there's two kinds of people. There are the poor who are rich and the rich who are poor. In chapter 2, here's the poor who are rich. In chapter 3, verse 17, there are those, he says, I know you think you're rich, but you are pitiful and poor and miserable and lack everything. It's true in this world. There are the poor who are actually rich and the rich who are actually poor. He says, I know that. I, I understand that. He says, I understand. Look at what it says there. The slander of the Jews. You think Jesus understood the slander of the Jews? Those who say they are Jews and their slander in verse 9, but are really a synagogue of Satan? Jesus calls them this all the way throughout the book of Matthew. He's saying, listen, you have this religious institution. You have these beautiful buildings. But the reality is you are nothing but a demonic organization because you hate the things of God, nor do you love the Son of God. They might try to say that they have the same God. People do this with Muslims all the time. Well, we worship the same God. We don't worship the same God because the God we serve says that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And if you do not see Jesus Christ alone as Lord and submit to him, we do not have the same God. The Jews had abandoned and wanted to do anything they could, anything they could to take down the believers. He says, I know your slander. I know all of this. Listen to me. Jesus feels it. I said, some, I said last week in my sermon, some of you may say, well, I'm just not a very emotional person. That's not true. God is an emotional God. We see it in the life of Jesus. He rejoices. He weeps. He has made us to be emotional people. What I just want you to know is that God is not distant or aloof. He feels everything that you are feeling. I just don't think we think enough about the heart of God toward us. He is feeling the pressures that you are in. He's empathetic. We're not trying to build confidence strong enough to withstand the pressures we build it with confidence in his sovereignty we build it with confidence in his empathy the final one is this be confident in his victory be confident in his victory <laughs> again from beginning to end this passage is just oozing with with victory we see it because he's the first and the last and he died and he came to life i love that Again, there's this one last man standing in his people. He gets the last word. Jesus Christ always wins. He died and came to life. He took Satan's greatest victory, which was the death of Christ, and conquered it by Jesus coming back to life. He has taken everyone and will take every victory that the enemy has ever thought he's won, and he will demonstrate his power and authority over all of those. And the greatness of the book of Revelation, the entire book as a whole, is to remind us that the suffering church, which is despised and persecuted all around the world, the church that seems as it is being crushed, is actually the group that will win. That's the glory of the book of Revelation. It is hard for us to understand because we're not encountering what they were and what most of the world is, 
But this is incredible news to be reminded that even though everyone seems to hate you and despise you and is pushing a, putting a crushing burden upon you, the church of Jesus Christ wins. We will suffer. We will battle. Jesus and his people will appear to be losing throughout generation and generation, but Jesus will return. He will destroy his enemies. He will bind Satan for all of eternity. He will establish his kingdom on earth where we will rule and reign with Church, be confident that life is hard and you will suffer. But Jesus always wins. Now, one of the little subtle things here is that we shouldn't just be confident in his victory. Listen, we should be confident in our victory. Look, look at what it says. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And look at the sweetness of this next phrase. Be faithful unto death. And if you are, if you stand firm until the end, holding on to the confidence that you have in Christ, I will give you the crown of life. That, that's the victor's crown. That's the word that was used to refer to the, to the Greek games in which there was one victor. And that one victor at the end of his victory receives a crown. It is the victor's crown awarded to those who come in first. You say, well, how can we all come in first? Because we're united with Christ who comes in first. So all of us, all of us come in first. All of us get the crown a victory. Why? Because we are victorious in Jesus Christ to the extent that you are united with Christ is the extent to which you will be victorious. This is like the ultimate picture of Matthew 20:16. The first will be last and the last will be first. I don't know why it is. I, this, the demonic nature of the prosperity gospel cannot even be properly communicated. But I don't know why there is this idea that somehow on earth we are to be first. No, I think in every way we've been prepared to be last. And listen to me, listen to me. If, 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 if you are willing to just be last, if you are willing to be humiliated, if you are willing to be persecuted, if you are willing to speak up and stand for the truth, if you will be willing to be last, the promise is this, you will be first. It is possible that you might be last for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, but the promise that goes along with that is that, that you will be first with Christ for all of eternity. This is not simply assurance of his victory, it is an assurance of ours. And he says in verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is, is hell. It is the place where all of those who have tried so hard to win, to win, to win, and in trying to win, have negated their relationship with Jesus Christ, that they will lose. Listen, if Christ is not preeminent in your heart, you will not win. Those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. Now listen to this. I told you two weeks ago. But the whole theme of these letters in Revelation flows out of what is happening in chapter 1 where you see Jesus ablaze in glory. And here we are as the church, the holders of the flame. We exist to be ablaze with the glory of Jesus Christ. Ablaze with the glory of Jesus Christ. You say, what is the, the point of this message? How does this fit in? It fits in this way. Listen, we exist to be ablaze until 
listen to me, ablaze until death, till the moment you die, till your very last breath, ablaze with the glory of God. And it works out so incredibly because as the persecution comes and as the pressure gets greater, what happens is the more you stand with faithfulness, the more you're confident in the Lord, the more you are ablaze with the glory of Christ. Because what you're saying, not just in your comfort, but in your suffering, is that Jesus is enough. That he's good enough. That he's better. That I'm willing to be last so that I might be first. Like I got such a great picture of this this week. And I was rushing from one kid's sporting event to another kid's sporting event in two different schools. And I came to this campus where my daughter was running cross country. And I got there really as the race was just about to end. And I watched her finish, and I watched everybody else finish, and we had gotten so late to the end of the race that I just assumed everyone was done. As a matter of fact, we went to pick up my daughter's stuff at her little tent, and we were walking across the course going through the ropes because no one else, it seemed, was running. And as Gracie and I got her stuff and were headed to the car, I started hearing this screaming voice. It wasn't a terrifying scream. It was more of a cheer and a shout. And I looked back, and I saw this mom running outside of the ropes, just yelling at her child, just pleading with her child to keep going. And then I saw, I saw the child. She had a physical disability. I don't know exactly what was wrong, but one entire side of her body seemed to not be able to move very much. And so she was running like this, but this arm couldn't move. And this leg was okay, but not really good enough. And we're talking five, ten minutes after everyone else was done. Here she is, and she's just barely making it. Like you can tell, she's exerting every ounce of energy she has in order to make it until the end. And here's her mom just, just coaching her and pleading with her and loving on her. And I just thought as I walked away, that's us and Jesus. That's us. We're limping to the finish line. This is so hard. And we're limping. We're barely making it. But here's Jesus on the side saying, listen, for the joy set before you, endure it. Just go. Just don't give up. Just keep being faithful. It is Jesus Christ pleading with us, saying, listen, to every last breath, until your dying day, just love me. That he's pleading with us to have in our heart a love for him and a confidence so deep that our heart literally burns like wildfire, ablaze with the glory of God. For us to be able to say with Christ, you, you are my only hope, you are my only prize, and until the moment I die, I will run. 